Intent on answering Morgan's critics by emphasizing his patriotic spirit and jolly Christmas parties, Satterley drained all vitality from the tale. The critics drew sharper pictures. Wisconsin's Republican Senator Robert W. La Follette described Morgan in 1910 as a beefy, red-faced, thick-necked financial bully, drunk with wealth and power who bawls his orders to stock markets, directors, courts, governments, and nations. In the 30s, the banker appeared in John Dos Passos's novel 1919 as the boss croupier of Wall Street, a bull-necked, irascible man with small black magpie's eyes, famous for suddenly blowing up in a visitor's face and for that special gesture of the arm that meant what do I get out of it? Matthew Josephson, in his history The Robber Barons, 1934, portrayed Morgan as imperiously proud, rude and lonely, intensely undemocratic, equal to throwing articles of food or clothing at his servants when they nodded and forgot his wants. Half a century later, in E. L. Doctorow's Ragtime, Morgan figured as a burly six-footer with a large head of sparse white hair, a white mustache, and fierce, intolerant eyes set just close enough to suggest the psychopathology of his will. When I first considered writing about Morgan in the 1980s at the urging of my editor, Jason Epstein, I thought the story would be worth trying to tell again if new evidence made it possible to see past the legends and anecdotes. And then I learned that the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York had vaults of uncatalogued biographical documents, including Morgan's childhood diaries and school books, his adult letters and cables, volumes of business correspondence, hundreds of photographs, and extensive files on his purchases of art. Only Satterley had seen this material and used it selectively. Allen saw some of it, but drew a well-crafted 300-page sketch, not a full-scale portrait. Over the next several years, I found additional documents in private hands, at the Morgan Grenfell Archives in London, and in other repositories on both sides of the Atlantic. Eventually, I began to write, and got about halfway through a draft before I saw that it wasn't working. Months later, I realized why. From the outset, I had found Morgan's detractors more convincing than his champions. They were better writers. They reflected popular American assumptions, including my own, about the robber baron chapter of our history and their bracing hostility gave the story force. The advocates, by comparison, seemed defensive and fawning. As a result, I had been looking for a modified, human-scale version of the boss croupier of Wall Street, the cynical tycoon who subjected the entire U.S. economy to the psychopathology of his will, and that was not what I had found. The evidence didn't support the picture I had preemptively drawn, and I hadn't been noticing what it did suggest. 
For example, Matthew Josephson in The Robber Barons reported that after Morgan precipitated the peculiarly atrocious and wanton panic of 1901, which ruined thousands of people and was felt in all the financial capitals of the world, he swore at idiots and rascals who sought to interview him and threatened one reporter with murder. Asked if some statement was not due the public, the banker announced, I owe the public nothing. This story turns out to be largely fiction. Briefly, a group of Morgan's rivals tried to take over one of the railroads he controlled, the Northern Pacific, by secretly buying its stock while he was in France. When his partners in New York caught on, they cabled him for instructions, then began to...